Well, it's a great blessing to stand and to hear great singing behind you. Um, you don't get that blessing if you're a backseat Presbyterian, uh, but uh, lovely there because uh, usually I sometimes I'll go over there and I, and I miss out on that. So thank you for the uh, lovely singing uh, to, to lead God's people as we all sing. Uh, and that song, actually, Every Promise of Your Word, uh, part of the reason for that, I don't know if you noticed, the first thing maybe to, to draw out in this passage that we considered was when you, when you look through uh, those first nine verses of chapter two, you continually hear about the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. Speak now. Uh, it, it says, uh, declares the Lord. Be strong, declares the Lord. At work, for I am with you, declares the Lord. My spirit remains, and you fear not, for I am with you. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Uh, throughout that passage, in, in nearly every verse, and sometimes twice, it talks about God speaking, God declaring his word. Thus says the Lord. Not only is he the Lord, the covenant Lord, he is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies the one who's in control, the one who has all power. And he's speaking and he has spoken. And that's something that should give us confidence right at the very beginning, that whatever's going on in our lives, we can trust and we can have every, we can, as we were singing there, every promise of your word. And we know that every promise of God's word in the Old Testament finds its yes and its amen in Jesus Christ. And so right from the beginning this evening, Take confidence in God's Word. Look to God's Word. Rely on God's Word. Have it as your only rule, your only authority for life and for your faith, whatever's going on in your life right now. But then let's now pay attention with that in mind to what uh, this passage is all about. Again, mentioned before that Haggai is quite concerned with, with deities. We, we considered uh, last time as we opened this uh, short series in Haggai, and it, was, it began in chapter 1, the second year of Darius the king in the sixth month and the first day of the month. And so we were, we were setting it in its historical context, uh, Darius, uh, the Persian king at the time. And as well as that, the time of the year it was, the sixth month for them worked out was actually harvest time. And there was this sense of being dissatisfied with life, being dissatisfied with your crop, your lot in life. And that was the time where you would have been considering how good the harvest was. The reasons for this uh, per harvest was because God's people, they'd been back, they'd started building, uh, building work as they were supposed to do on the house of the Lord. And there was a bit of opposition came from outside and the work stopped after a very short time and nothing had happened for about 16 years until Haggai comes on the scene. Uh, and there's this call then to, to take up tools, to take up materials, and to start building the house of the Lord. And indeed, uh, the, the first few verses there we read at the end of chapter one told us that there was almost this, there'd been this inertia for, for years. But as God's word uh, comes into situations, God's word changes things. And God's word changes lives. So it began by saying, every promise of your word and God's word preached every week, uh, there's an opportunity for changed lives. And it's in response to God's word. In response to God's word, God's people set to work uh, in rebuilding the temple. There's a significant date here uh, at the beginning of chapter two. 
It doesn't sound that significant when you first read it in the seventh month on the 21st day of the month. Sounds a bit random. Uh, and yet this, uh, in a sense, for, for, Christi- or for, for Jews would have heard that immediately as a reference uh, to uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the three pilgrim feasts in the Old Testament that we read of, one being Passover, another one being the Feast of Weeks, uh, and then this uh, Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths or Tents, we could call it, is the third one amongst a few others like the Day of Atonement. And um, again, it looks odd to us, but if you uh, I think I maybe said this the last time I was here, December 25th, you know, to, to someone not familiar with Christmas would, would be like, what's that about? Uh, and yet, it's that same sort of significance. Whenever you hear a date like that, or in Northern Ireland, the 12th of July, we know exactly what that day is about. And so too, when God's people would have heard this in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, uh, when this word comes Uh, So Haggai, greatly concerned with dates, and uh, they don't look that significant to us as we read them, but when we sort of pay attention to what day this actually is, uh, well, then we can can get a better sense of it. Uh, And so actually, if if you have your Bible there, you could turn to Leviticus chapter 23, and it tells us there exactly what the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths uh, or Shelters is all about. Uh, chapter 23 is, is of Leviticus is all about the feasts of the Lord. Uh, the, the main feast, in a sense, the most regular feast is the one that happens every seven days, the Sabbath. Uh, then it talks about the Passover, the first fruits, the weeks. Uh, and if we look down uh, to Leviticus 23, verse 33, it introduces us there. Uh, depending on your uh, translation, it might be titled slightly differently. Uh, in mine, it says above a little Uh, header, the Feast of Booths. Uh, And it says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. And then if we read on down uh, a bit, verse 42 says, uh, You shall dwell in booths, for seven days, all native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. And so we read there uh, the 15th day of the seventh month is the start of this seven or eight day. Uh, festival. And if we're back in Haggai, we'll see it's the 21st day of the month, so it's towards the end of this festival. And it's a bit of a strange uh, festival um, where people basically go out into their gardens uh, or they they gather to Jerusalem and then they sort of gather around uh, and basically put leaves together and make sort of shelters or booths or maybe makeshift tents. I don't know what you do for your summer holidays. Maybe there's some keen campers here who go away uh, take, pack up a car with these massive tents with all sorts of compartments and rooms, and maybe that's your idea of a nice holiday. I do love the, the great outdoors. Uh, don't get up the morns that much at the minute with the age our kids are, but I love going a big, long hike in the morns. I've done a few times, gone around the seven sevens in one day with my brother-in-law. We hiked around, but the idea of pitching a tent at the end of a long hike out is just not my idea. I'd much rather get into the sleeves honored and a nice hot shower and uh, a a nice bed to sleep in. But 
tents, the idea of a, of a tent sort of out in your garden when you've got a house is very strange. And yet the reason we're told there back in the end of Leviticus 23 is so that God's people would remember how God led them, His covenant faithfulness, His commitment that lasts always, and how He led them through the wilderness experience for 40 years. Yes, it was their disobedience that led to that, uh, and yet God continued to provide for them and to lead them as they, in a sense, set up camp and moved around day after day, night after night for 40 years. And so they were to remember that. And that was particularly uh, significant uh, as God's people then were settled in Jerusalem, thinking back to how they had been saved from uh, slavery in Egypt, how they'd been led through the wilderness. <coughs> but also, uh, there's a sort of, if we think of again, the, the people in Haggai's day, these are those who had just returned from exile. They'd been off in a foreign land in Babylon for all those years, and now they were back. And in some ways, that's almost like a second exodus. They'd returned to the land, having been away as exiles in Babylon. And as well as this, as, as God's people would have been uh, celebrating this feast in Haggai's day, not only would they have been thinking back to the, the great glories of, of uh, their first coming into the land of Canaan uh, and the reign of Saul and David and Solomon and the building of the temple, uh, they wouldn't have just been thinking uh, of, of that uh, in terms of, sorry, I've confused myself there. There's, there's what happened in the Torah and Leviticus uh, and what they were to do when they came into the land, but then it's actually 1 Kings chapter 8 where Solomon the dedication of the original temple that Solomon built happened during this very feast of, of tabernacles or of booths. You can read that in 1 Kings 8, first few verses there tell us, and you read through that chapter 8 of Kings, uh, the, the, the foundation, the, the opening of the temple, the dedication of the temple, when the glory came into the temple happened during this feast of tabernacles. And so this is the setting into which Haggai's message comes. And what is the message now? The people have set to work, and so, so now what? Is it going to be opposition again from outside? We're living in a hostile world uh, where the gospel is not received as it once was. No longer is it just the fact that uh, the outsider or the non-Christian would see Christians as, well, do-gooders. Uh, oh, yes, well, I don't really believe what they believe, but it's harmless and you know, they're do-gooders, or sure, they run kids' clubs for the kids, and that's all good. That, now it's actually seen as harmful. We're indoctrinating children with, with, with things that don't fit with today's modern sensibilities. And so maybe there's a sense of, of hostility from the, the outside world that we can uh, be faced with as Christians, and, and you wonder, is this going to be what is ahead for the people in Haggai's day? But the problem here is actually not opposition from the surrounding uh, peoples uh, who'd caused problems previously uh, when they first started building the temple uh, a few years before. Instead, it's almost as they've got started in the work, they're standing in Jerusalem with almost piles of rubble around them, and 
maybe I can, you can indulge me a personal. <laughs> We've just moved into a wonderful manse down in Larne, but there's not, not rubble around us, but boxes. It feels a bit like rubble. Uh, all sorts of boxes, bags, and we're looking, where's this, where's this? And some of the things you think, they're maybe not necessities, but they're the things you want. It's like, where's the food disposal waste thing to put our banana skins in? Where's this? Where's that? And you can't find anything you're looking for, even when you've got boxes labeled. Uh, and there's this sense of, in the midst of it, and it can be a bit overwhelming. God's people are responding to Haggai's first message to rebuild the house of the Lord. And yet, it doesn't seem that good. And that's not something uh, that uh, God forgets about. Uh, what I mean is, if we look on down there, um, there's a question that comes from God through Haggai. Question three, or verse 3, he says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Now, we have to remember here uh, that the, the time that's elapsed from the house in its former glory prior to 586 uh, BC. It's at least 66 years uh, since that temple was there in its former glory before it was destroyed. Uh, and so that time span has passed, and there would have been very few, if any, who were left. And those who were left who had saw it would have been quite on edge um, to remember it. And maybe they were very young when they uh, saw it or were, were there for it. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when you're younger, uh, things seem a lot bigger than when you're older. Uh, I remember uh, I went to Port Stewart Primary School, and uh, I remember when I was in primary school, the assembly hall. I don't know about uh, some of the kids over here. Maybe you're not in assemblies yet. Well, no, I know you are. You're in assembly, and you sort of think, well, there's the big hall, and this is big, and it's really, and sometimes parents come for uh, special services, or uh, maybe there's a school show on. There's lots of people there, and it seems such a big hall. Uh, and then I remember going back, as you, you know, as a polling station when I was an adult and thought, this pokey little hall is this big hall in my mind from, from whatever it was 10, 15 years previous. Uh, well, that would also sort of add into the situation here. But it's also remembering the temple that was in Solomon's day with all its gold, all its, uh, you can read about it again, you read in First Kings all that went into the temple, and yet here they are standing, surrounded by rubble, and it doesn't look that glorious. And so, what are they to do? Uh, are they to just continue feeling uh, demoralized? Well, there's a sense of realism from God, even in asking this question, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? And God provides the initial answer, saying, is it not as nothing in your eyes? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? There's realism here from God. Not, it's not as bad as you think. Sometimes I ha can have that approach. Um, there's not that much seems to, f f you know, fluster me uh, in many ways. Uh, and sometimes uh, with Claire and my wife, I can be like, oh, sure, it's not as bad as you think. You sure we can make the best of this? And, uh, and sometimes uh, I sort of paper over maybe things and, and think things aren't maybe as serious as they are. Uh, and sometimes that doesn't wear well uh, if you're the person hearing it. And maybe you have that experience as well where someone's always trying to be positive no matter how terrible a situation is. And there's always this positivity and it sort of irritates you a bit then. How can they be so happy and smiley or or that little pep talk's just not cutting it for me. Well, 
Here, God doesn't try to paper over the cracks. There's a realism from God here. Maybe as we think about uh, the situation that we're in here, that you're in here in Connor, maybe you've grown up here, you've been here your whole life, and as I'm looking out, there's no one sitting upstairs, and most of the pews, there's no one in as well. There's still a good few people, and it's a great even uh, uh, worship attendance compared to many congregations around our denomination, and yet numbers decline. And you look around and you think, is this it? What does the future hold? What does the future hold? And especially if you're older here, you maybe look around and you, you think, oh, back in the day, this place was full. And you maybe view the, the sort of glory days of this congregation or in the past. Maybe you, you, you look back to the likes of 1859. I don't think any of you are around then, maybe. don't know. Um, you, you look back and maybe in your in memory or what you've heard, you think, well, those would have been the glory days back in 1859 or back in 1959. And you think these were the glory days and they're in the past. But now, yes, still great to be part of this congregation, but things just seem to be slowly going down and down. Uh, it's the case, uh, in my own experience, uh, I spent five years, I was a member of uh, McQuiston Memorial Congregation in East Belfast. Uh, back in the 1950s or 60s, it was the biggest congregation in PCI. I remember when I was there, um, back sort of uh, in around 2008, 2013, I was a member there, and some of the older ladies would have been telling me about back in the day, if you weren't uh, at evening worship at least 30 or 40 minutes beforehand, you'd have been sitting in the windowsill. Uh, and that was a building that was actually a bit bigger than in here, I think, and it sat about 800 to 1,000 people. And yet today, that congregation, I was at the installation of their new minister there a few months ago, and was talking to one of the elders, uh, and he said there was around about 70 uh, gathering for worship uh, on Sundays. And so people might think the glory days are behind us for each congregation, for a denomination. And yet it's into situations like this, where there's maybe a sense of being demoralized about the work of the church, about being here this evening, about situations in your own life which are hard, where God doesn't paper over the cracks, but into the, into the situations we find ourselves, which causes us pain. There's a realism from God. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And then into that comes his message in verse 4. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of armies. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of armies. That's what's really being said there. Uh, there's this uh, three times, be strong, be strong, be strong. The reason that this strength can be had the reason this call for work can happen is because he is with his people, declares the Lord of armies. And so whatever we're faced with, it might not look great in our eyes, but God is saying, I am with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you, we read in Hebrews. And so we can carry on working as unto the Lord rather than unto men. We can carry on doing the things that God calls us to do, even when it seems not that glorious, even when it seems small 
compared to maybe times in the past. And sometimes we, we look at the past through rose-tinted uh, lenses. We're called to be faithful to God in the here and now, in the little situations in our lives, in the, in the situations of, of our corporate life as a congregation. We're called to be faithful. We're called to be strong. We're called to work. And the reason, the motivation, the empowering for that work comes from the fact that God is with us. That's what verse 4 says. And so we want to work even when it doesn't seem that glorious, even when it does seem like there's rubble all around us. And I want to give you, uh, maybe I read this a while ago and it's, 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 it's stuck with me. It's um, the book, it's a, it's a great book, I would recommend it. Uh, it's by a lady called Megan Hill, and it's called A Place to Belong, Learning to Love the Local Church. And I'm just going to read uh, just about a page uh, from this, and, and it speaks into the situation that we find ourselves in, particularly in the church. As Haggai relates to the house of the Lord, we're thinking of how the, the steps forward to that are uh, the house of the Lord points to the presence of God with his people, and that is Jesus. And then Jesus talks about the temple as being his body, and that's the church. And she says this, Megan Hill, around the corner from where I live, a house is for sale. In bold green letters, the lawn sign reads, I'm gorgeous inside. The message is surprising. From the street, the house is thoroughly ordinary, even run down. It's a 70s era uh, raised ranch with dingy white vinyl siding and a location on a busy road. The roof looks like it lacks the necessary resolve to bear the weight of another winter's snowfall. The circular driveway loops around a weedy patch of grass, obviously intended for a fountain, but more likely currently concealing ticks. The bushes are too big, the windows are too small, and the backyard is non-existent but the sign encourages me to believe there's something more beautiful and more valuable about this seemingly ho-hum house than I can appreciate from the curb. The local church is a little like that house. At first glance, the house of God, Hebrews 10, 21, is unremarkable, a regular gathering of ordinary people committed to a largely invisible mission where young and old, male and female, single and married, unemployed and overworked, None of us is much to look at. We sing slightly off key, and we can't always clearly articulate the faith we profess. Anyone can see that our diverse personalities, political views, and parenting styles don't easily harmonize, and even our most spiritually mature members sometimes stumble into quarrels, petty jealousies, grumbling, and lethargy. Following worship, Bad coffee and awkward moments are served at plastic tables in a damp basement. But the church has more beauty and more value than we can see with physical eyes. Like the Old Testament tabernacle that was covered on the outside with ram skins and goat hair, but ornamented inside with gold and silver, the ordinary looking church is actually much more than it seems. The Bible proclaims that the church is a radiant bride, a spiritual house made with living stones, a pillar and buttress of the truth, the very body of Christ himself. We may not immediately realize it from the curb, but this house is gorgeous. And, then, and the, the rest of the book goes on to unpack some of those New Testament words 
that, that describe the church, but that's the reality. It looks very ordinary. Uh, this uh, building, maybe it's an impressive structure in the little village of Connor, and yet people think, oh, church, that's just people going in. They're singing a few songs. Some prayers are said, and it seems ordinary, and to an increasingly secular uh, society seems odd. Why would people still be doing that sort of thing? Is that not from days gone by before we were enlightened? There's a lot of chronological snobbery goes on in our world today, and people think, well, why would you do that? And yet the reason we do this is because God has called us to, and because God has opened our eyes and has given us life, and that life is found in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was a word that came to the people in Haggai's day. And there's a strange, and I'll close with this, there's a strange uh, part of this uh, to God's people where they would have been thinking, yes, that's good. God is being, there's a sense of realism with God. He's not trying to cover over the uh, paper over the cracks. Uh, he recognizes the situation we're in doesn't look too pretty. But how can he say that the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former glory? For these people would have heard of the glories uh, of the temple under Solomon, heard of uh, the nation of Israel at its height under David and Solomon, and they were a long way from there now. Their nation had been defeated. They'd been carried off into exile. No longer were there 12 tribes. They'd been split up after Solomon. Uh, the, the northern tribes had all ended up gone, mixed in, now Samaritans, and all that was left was Judah, and how could this new structure, as they stand amidst the rubble, compare in any way? And yet God says the latter glory will be greater than the former glory. Well, that's where our New Testament reading comes in. Because if you remember, when Jesus is brought into the temple as an eight-day-old baby boy, Mary and Joseph bring him to bring the offering for circumcision, and Simeon, the, Simeon takes him in his arms, and as he holds this baby in his arms, his eyes, he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And what's he looking at? A little child, a needy child, a dependent child, a fragile child, and he's saying, my eyes have seen your salvation, that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon sees this, sees this child and sees this is glory. And John gives us in another way where the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. Simeon recognizes this, and yet there would have been many others at the temple that day, and they wouldn't have recognized it. Anna was there. She recognized it, but it was only for those who had eyes to see, only for those who had eyes to see, whose blind eyes were opened, who God had revealed to. What would other people have seen? They would have just seen something a bit ordinary. And they would have seen Mary and Joseph come in. You, you remember there, there was the, the offering that they made according to the law of Moses. If you actually look up that law, uh, it doesn't say uh, turtle doves or two young pigeons. Initially, it talks about a lamb. It's basically if you're too poor to offer the lamb, then you can offer the turtle doves. 
And so the fact that Mary and Joseph are, are bringing turtle doves shows the poverty of them. Most people would have just seen them walk in that day and thought there's another poor couple. They're coming in just for the new baby. Oh, it's nice. They've got a child, but they didn't recognize the glory that was in their midst. It's only for those who have eyes to see. And that's the reality of the church in the world today. It's only for those who have eyes to see. And so if you're here this evening and you're thinking, oh, life just a bit mundane, it's a bit ordinary, coming to church is a bit ordinary. We sing God's praise, we pray, we hear God's word. It seems ordinary and mundane. And yet God is revealing himself week by week, Sunday after Sunday, as Philip preaches or as whoever's up here preaches God's word. God makes himself known and there's glory, glory in the church. At the end of time, it will be the church, Ephesians tells us, uh, all things Christ has for the church. And so in the midst of this world, it's only those who've had their eyes opened to see this. To everyone else, it looks ordinary. And so be encouraged as we come to a close uh, that whilst the building work that God calls us to to continue devoting ourselves to the church, to being here, not just being present, but also being involved as we worship, uh, as we participate, as we serve one another, as we give, as we pay attention, as we be hearers as well as doers then of the word, to know that this pleases God as we do this in Christ. Uh, and the last bit of uh, Haggai, talks about uh, the treasures coming in from the nations. Uh, and there's a sense of that even again with Jesus, the Magi who came from the east bringing their treasures, uh, bringing the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. Uh, and God shaking the nations is in a sense to right the wrongs. The things that have been stolen are going to be shaken out and put back where they belong. And they're going to fill the house of the Lord. And so it's the church that receives God's ultimate blessing and glory is found in the church. So if you're in the church this evening, you are in the church building this evening, but if you're a living stone in this building, well then praise God that he has opened your eyes to see and to recognize that glory. And in the week ahead, whatever you're faced with that sometimes seems hard, that sometimes seems ordinary, and as you gather here next week as well, know that God is with you and that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we bow and we give you thanks for your word to us, uh, and we give you thanks for the glory that we can know now, that though in some respects it does not look like much uh, outward glory gone, that your spirit is present, that you've given us your spirit as individual believers and to your church. Father, we give you thanks that you are with us. Uh, and that because you are with us, we can work. We can continue to work out our salvation for it is you who are working in us and that you will carry on to completion the work that you have begun in us 
until the day of Christ Jesus, where all things will be properly revealed and so that all will see and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue and every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, confessing that Jesus is Lord. We thank you that you have brought us into this kingdom, this kingdom that cannot be shaken, and that you are the one who does this work. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.